Hey guys, your favorite sites brother Jason here again. Chris and I are well rested and as promised have lots of content coming your way. Today I'd like to introduce our newest course, Foundations of Stroke and Stroke Recognition. This course was created in collaboration with Medtronic Neurovascular and is one of the two projects coming your way in the coming month. For the best experience, check out the video version of this episode on your favorite podcasting platform and remember to earn 0.5 EMS continuing education credits. You can check this episode out at guardiancme.com. Enjoy. Welcome to Guardian CME's Foundation of Stroke and Stroke Recognition course, sponsored by Medtronic Neurovascular. This course is designed for all providers seeking to enhance their knowledge of stroke and stroke recognition, but is especially valuable to pre-hospital providers and members of the EMS community. This course will provide 0.5 EMS continuing education credits that are CAPC accredited for all levels. For more free CME credits, check out guardiancme.com for a full library of courses to enhance your knowledge and complete your required continuing education. By the end of this course, you'll have learned to appreciate the value of understanding, identifying, measuring, communicating, and documenting stroke in the field. Identify the different parts of the brain and their function. Describe the pathophysiology of brain ischemia and infarct. Classify, compare, and contrast stroke syndromes and recognize and differentiate strokes from stroke mimics. This course is brought to you by Medtronic Neurovascular. Medtronic works daily to help thousands of providers and patients fight the battle against stroke. They're passionate, dedicated people committed to delivering meaningful innovation to advance stroke treatment, care, and education. To find out more, check out what they're working on at medtronic.com. I'm Jason Seitz, and this is Guardian CME. Stroke affects 795,000 Americans each year. It's the second leading cause of death and third leading cause of death and disability combined worldwide. Globally, stroke also results in over $721 billion in annual cost and $53 billion in U.S. annual cost between 2017 and 2018. Stroke is an important area for healthcare professionals to concentrate on in order to make a difference in patient lives. But before we can understand how to help, we have to understand what we're up against. What is a stroke? To understand strokes well, we have to first recognize the significance of oxygen's role in the tissues of the body. Oxygen is a requirement of our body's cells to create energy to carry out their function. Cellular respiration uses oxygen and glucose to make adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, our fundamental energy currency in the cell. Without oxygen and glucose, our cells won't be able to create ATP, subsequently no longer being able to maintain cellular health, and they'll die. Oxygen is essential for our bodies, and especially our brains, because cells can't be in an oxygen deficient state for too long. In a stroke, oxygen deficit happens in one of two ways, either through an ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke event. Of all the strokes that happen each year, around 13% are hemorrhagic, meaning that the lack of oxygen is caused by internal bleeding in the brain. This presents a unique challenge to medical providers because they can't always prevent the bleeding without surgical intervention, and oftentimes it can be too late. The other 87% of the time, strokes occur when a vessel that supplies blood to the brain becomes blocked. These strokes are called ischemic strokes. In ischemic strokes, interventions can be done by providers in an attempt to limit the ischemic damage to the brain. This includes early recognition and imaging to identify the area of the brain the stroke occurred, as well as the significance of the blockage. 
Once the clinician understands the location and severity of the blockage, they can decide the best course of treatment for the patient. The treatment may include clot-busting medication or even mechanical removal of the clot by mechanical thrombectomy. More on this later. This course will concentrate heavily on ischemic strokes, as new technology and assessment techniques have advanced ischemic stroke care by leaps and bounds. Ischemia is a lack of oxygen to a tissue, and if left untreated, it will quickly develop into irreversible death of tissue. In EMS, we're most familiar with this concept in reference to myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. When an artery supplying the heart gets blocked or narrowed, the lack of oxygen to the heart muscle will eventually create an infarct of the muscle tissue, unless something is done to remove the blockage or open the vessel wider. In this lesson, you'll quickly begin to see the parallels between strokes and heart attacks regarding their pathophysiologic mechanism. Cerebral infarction is a blockage in the cerebral blood flow. If left untreated, it can lead to permanent and irreversible death of brain tissue. Time is of the essence because brain tissue dies in a bullseye fashion, and we want to save surrounding brain tissue that's dying but not yet dead. The area surrounding the ischemic core is called the penumbra. This salvageable area of ischemic brain tissue will return to normal function if providers are able to restore blood flow to the affected area of the brain. This means that even when major damage to the brain has been caused by a stroke, EMS providers have the opportunity to prevent the problem from becoming even worse with quick recognition and transport. Many factors are involved in determining the severity of an ischemic stroke. The location of the clot in the brain, the size of the blockage, where in the circulation the blockage is, and the length of time the brain has been ischemic all play a role. We'll be talking about each of these and how they relate to the patient's condition. Currently, it takes advanced imaging to determine most of these factors, but with new developments in assessment and technological advances, we are fast approaching a time where EMS providers will be responsible for not just recognizing the presence of a stroke, but using tools and skill sets to pinpoint just how severe that stroke is. Armed with this information, EMS providers will know how to begin more advanced stroke prevention and treatment, and the specific stroke center that has the unique and specific tools for their patient. So, with the clock ticking, it's essential for EMS providers to quickly assess the presence and severity of strokes and transport to an appropriate facility. The human brain is a complex and intricate organ, responsible for controlling and coordinating all of the body's functions and activities. It's made up of a number of distinct areas, each of which plays a specific role in the overall functioning of the brain. Let's take a closer look at some of these key areas of the brain and their functions. The cerebral cortex is the outer layer of the brain and is responsible for higher brain functions such as thought, perception, and consciousness. It is divided into four main lobes, the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, and the occipital lobe. The frontal lobe is responsible for executive functions such as planning, problem solving, and decision making. It's also involved in emotion and personality. The parietal lobe processes sensory information from the body such as touch, temperature, and pain. It also helps with spatial awareness and navigation. The temporal lobe is responsible for processing auditory information and is also involved in memory and language. The occipital lobe is responsible for processing visual information. The cerebellum is located beneath the cerebral cortex and is responsible for coordinating voluntary movement and balance. The brainstem is located between the cerebrum and the spinal cord and is responsible for controlling vital functions such as heart rate, blood pressure, and breathing. It also plays a role in controlling reflexes and integrating sensory information. 
The hippocampus is located in the temporal lobe and is involved in spatial navigation and memory consolidation. The amygdala is located in the temporal lobe and is involved in emotion and the formation of memories. The basal ganglia are a group of structures located deep within the brain that are involved in the control of voluntary movement and learning. The thalamus is located in the center of the brain and acts as a relay station for sensory information, sending it to the appropriate areas of the brain for processing. Now you may be thinking as an EMS provider, how will knowing the areas of the brain change or enhance my treatment? Is there really any relevance here to my work? There certainly is. Since each area of the brain is responsible for specific functions, there can be a large myriad of symptoms when someone is having a stroke. Recognizing the specific area of the brain that's being affected by analyzing a patient's symptoms can get the ball rolling for the hospital to be prepared for advanced treatments. Think of it this way. In 12-lead EKG interpretation, we look at an EKG not to change our treatment, but to identify a blockage that's more severe, a STEMI, so we can alert the hospital to have advanced treatments, their cath lab, ready to go. In this example, we would need an understanding of the anatomy and physiology of the heart to apply the knowledge. I need to know that leads 2, 3, and AVF form an inferior MI, not because I'm the one who will be placing the stent, but because I'm the first line of detection and can alert the hospital to be ready. In the same way, by using advanced assessment skills on stroke patients, we can clue in neurologists to which area of the brain is being affected, and with stroke severity scales, how severe of an impact the infarct has caused. This may require changes in transport to a thrombectomy-capable stroke center, preparation of meds and equipment at the destination, or online medical direction requesting more information. As always, the EMS provider's job is to stabilize the patient and prepare the receiving facility with valuable information. Without a background in anatomy and physiology of the brain, we wouldn't be able to inform the hospital with pertinent information. So let's get back to it. Now that we have a basic understanding of the brain, let's take a look at the vessels that supply these areas with oxygen. The arteries that supply the brain are a crucial part of the body's circulatory system, responsible for delivering oxygen and nutrients to the brain and removing waste products. The brain requires a constant supply of blood and oxygen to function properly, and any disruption in this supply can have serious consequences. There are two main arteries that supply the brain, the internal carotid arteries and the vertebral arteries. The internal carotid arteries supply about 80% of the brain's blood, while the vertebral arteries handle the other 20%. We will start with the internal carotid arteries, or ICAs. They are the larger of the two arteries and are responsible for supplying the front and sides of the brain. They begin at the base of the skull and travel up the neck, entering the brain through the carotid canal. Once inside the brain, they divide into smaller branches. These smaller branches are called the anterior and middle, or medial, cerebral arteries, often abbreviated to ACAs and MCAs. The ACAs supply the blood to the medial, frontal, and parietal lobes. The MCAs supply blood to the lateral surface of the cerebral hemispheres. Now there are some further divisions like the posterior communicating arteries and the anterior cortical arteries which provide further splits, but you won't need to worry too much about getting into the nuances of this in your understanding of the anatomy. So a quick recap, the internal carotid arteries are the larger of the two main blood suppliers to the brain and split into the anterior and middle cerebral arteries. The vertebral arteries are smaller of our two main arteries and supply the back of the brain. They begin in the neck and travel up through the spine, entering the brain through the foramen magnum, the hole at the base of the skull. 
Like the internal carotid arteries, the vertebral arteries also divide into smaller branches once they get into the brain area. The posterior cerebral arteries branch from here and supply some of the cerebellum with blood and often some of the spinal cord. The anterior spinal artery splits from here as well and also supplies the spinal cord. Then the two vertebral arteries actually combine to become one big artery called the basilar artery, which splits into a bunch of small cerebral arteries to supply the cerebrum, and the two posterior cerebral arteries that supply blood to the medial and inferior surfaces of the temporal and occipital lobe. Last thing to remember is that the brain is also protected by a network of arteries called the circle of Willis, which acts as a backup system in case of a blockage or disruption in the flow of blood to the brain. The circle of Willis is made up of smaller arteries that connect the internal carotid and vertebral arteries and can provide an alternative route for blood to reach the brain if needed. Any disruption in the flow of blood to the brain can have serious consequences, which is why it is important to maintain the health of these arteries and why a backup system like this is so useful to have. Only 30 to 35% of people have a complete circle of Willis though. Just remember that like any blood vessel system, you have a highway of vital oxygen and nutrients that branches off into smaller and smaller roadways to eventually get to every neighborhood of the brain. If we get a traffic jam at any of these roads, the neighborhoods downstream are in trouble. So the bigger the road blocked, the bigger the area of damage. Now you may be thinking, we've just given you a lot of useful information that you can walk away with, but that you'll probably forget quicker than you learned. So let's bring it together with why. Why does an EMS provider want to know about the arteries and areas of the brain? The reason is that in strokes, the area of blockage can be identified by the symptoms the patient is presenting with, based on the area that isn't receiving oxygen. If Chris presents to me with symptoms of face and upper extremity weakness, I can be confident that his primary motor cortex, located in his frontal lobe, is affected because that's the area responsible for controlling motor function of the upper extremities in the face. If that's the case, then I know he has blockage to the vessel that feeds oxygen to the frontal lobe. This would be the medial cerebral arteries. If he also has symptoms of lower extremity weakness and urinary incontinence, then I know the blockage is even further upstream, likely in the internal carotid artery, and we're dealing with a larger, more serious stroke. You can see how knowledge of the anatomy and physiology of the brain can benefit me here. It's so closely tied to our assessment findings. Knowing why you're assessing certain things is crucial to have a deeper understanding of your patient's condition. So, to give you more context, we're going to cover four major stroke syndromes that we see based on the area of involvement of the brain. We'll start with the MCA stroke syndromes. In ischemia involving the medial or middle cerebral arteries, we can have involvement of the left MCA, the right MCA, or both. We can also have the inferior division affected, the superior division, or both. The MCAs supply a good chunk of the lateral side of the frontal lobe, the lateral side of the parietal lobe, and some of the temporal lobe. The particular area of the frontal lobe that is supplied is the primary motor cortex. This is what our brain uses to tell our muscles to move. So strokes affecting this area will cause a lack of motor function on the opposite side of the body. More often than not, the face and upper extremities are affected in an MCA. In the same way, the primary somatosensory cortex, the area of the brain responsible for processing sensation, is fed by the MCAs. So if affected, will present in contralateral sensory loss. The patient will have both sensory and motor loss, likely in the upper extremities and face. 
The MCAs also feed the frontal eye fields, resulting in ipsilateral gaze deviation, their eyes getting stuck looking one way. And interestingly enough, they also supply blood to two of our language areas in the brain, Wernicke's areas and Broca's area. Wernicke's area is responsible for language comprehension, while Broca's takes care of our speech production. So if both get blocked in a stroke, the patient won't be able to understand language. This is called receptive aphasia, and will not be able to produce comprehensible words. This is called expressive aphasia. But here's where our assessment can really help us. An inferior division MCA blockage will involve Wernicke's area, while a superior division MCA blockage will involve Broca's. So if my stroke patient is presenting with clear words that don't go together, he's having an inferior division MCA stroke. If he presents with being able to comprehend words but can't speak coherently, he's having a superior division MCA stroke. Recording the presence of these symptoms is a perfect example of how stroke severity scales can help us recognize more serious, larger blockages. If my patient has both expressive and receptive aphasia, I know to score them higher on the severity scale because the blockage must be big enough to affect both the inferior and superior divisions. You can also see that a lack of knowledge about what Broca and Wernicke's area do could cause a provider to make assumptions based on the patient's symptoms and misdiagnose a more serious emergency. For instance, expressive and receptive aphasia can very easily be misinterpreted as symptoms of drug or alcohol influence. With this knowledge, we improve our assessment as well as our time to respond. To sum them up, MCA stroke syndromes will show motor and sensory dysfunction of the extremities, typically the upper extremity along with the face, possible eye deviation, and issues with understanding and or forming language. While the MCAs hit the lateral sides of the primary motor and primary somatosensory cortex, the ACAs hit the medial portion. This results in motor and sensory contralateral loss, just like in MCAs, but this time it will be more likely for the lower extremities to be affected rather than the face and upper extremities. In addition to the medial parts of the frontal lobe, the ACA feeds the parietal lobe and pieces of the basal ganglia. If the paracentral lobule, a portion of the frontal and parietal lobe, is involved, patients may experience urinary and bowel incontinence because this portion of the brain is responsible for control of the urinary bladder and parts of the bowel. Behavioral changes can occur if pieces of the prefrontal cortex are ischemic, along with speech production similar to Broca's area involvement. In short, ACA stroke syndromes can involve motor and sensory dysfunction of the extremities, but typically the lower extremities urinary and bowel incontinence, possible behavioral changes, and speech production issues, but not comprehension issues. ICA syndromes are a bit easier. A very large vessel, the ICA branches into the ACA and MCA, which we just talked about. It also feeds the circle of Willis, that backup circulation our brains have developed. Since it turns into both, we'll recognize ICA blockage if we see MCA and ACA syndromes at the same time. The only truly unique symptom you may see in an ICA syndrome is vision loss in one or both eyes. So, in ICA syndromes, we often see symptoms of both ACA and MCA syndromes at the same time, along with possible vision loss. In PCA stroke syndromes, we need to remember that the PCA supplies the brainstem, the occipital lobe, and the thalamus. Contralateral loss of visual fields can occur with occipital lobe ischemia. Paralysis and sensory loss on one side of the body can occur with thalamus and midbrain involvement. 
and ataxia or clumsy voluntary movements can occur. This variability of symptoms can make PCA stroke syndromes quite difficult to diagnose, especially in the field. Depending on the amount of involvement, blockage in the PCAs can cause a slew of symptoms, from visual disturbances to full paralysis. Imaging via CT scan can assist in identifying these complicated strokes. Armed with this new understanding, you can see the importance of recognizing stroke symptoms early and efficiently. Without thorough assessment, no stroke will be discovered until well after it has done serious, irreversible damage. To ensure pre-hospital providers can recognize strokes effectively, many stroke screening tools have been approved and implemented into the EMS system. This includes the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale, Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Screen, the Melbourne Ambulance Stroke Screen, Medic Pre-Hospital Assessment for Code Stroke, the Ontario Pre-Hospital Stroke Screening Tool, Recognition of Stroke in the Emergency Room, and the Face-Arm Speech Test. Each scale has its own nuances, and we won't discuss each one in detail. It'll be up to you as an individual and your local protocol developers to determine which scale is best suited for you and your assessment. As a rule, stroke screens should recognize common stroke signs like altered mental status, speech dysfunction, motor function disruptions, sensory function disruptions, sight issues, and facial droop. If any of these symptoms are recognized, stroke should be suspected, and treatment and further assessment should be expedited. The typical acute ischemic stroke patient loses 1.9 million neurons every minute in the territory at risk if this does not occur. With a small window for effective treatments, EMS should quickly rule out any stroke mimics and continue assessment with a stroke severity scale. Several stroke severity scales are used in the field, such as FAST ED and RACE scores. Again, consult your local protocols for which to use, but stroke severity scales should concentrate on the following information. The last time the patient was seen well, the presence of expressive or receptive aphasia, identifying bilateral or contralateral motor dysfunction, and sensory deficits such as denial and neglect. Stroke severity scales allow us to identify the severity of a stroke and help neurointerventionalists at the hospital understand which area of the brain the stroke is affecting early enough to prepare. At this point, you should alert your hospital of your stroke findings with a stroke alert and consult your local protocols on how to communicate your findings and where to transport your patient. Just because someone is experiencing neurologic symptoms or altered mental status doesn't mean that they're having a stroke. There are several other conditions and exposures that can wreak havoc on our brains, and we need to approach our assessment more holistically to avoid missing valuable clues that our patients may be experiencing a different underlying condition or malady. Often called stroke mimics, the following maladies can very well appear initially to be a stroke. Low or high blood sugar, alcohol abuse, seizures, and psychiatric emergencies. Keep these conditions in mind when assessing a patient for potential stroke. You can rule them out systematically by ensuring you have asked appropriate questions, checked the patient's blood sugar, and paid attention to potential post-ictal behavior or the presence of petite mal seizures. At Guardian, we like to have our students apply what they've learned as quickly as possible to help anchor the information in their mind. So let's take what we've learned and apply it to a few scenarios for some extra grounding. Christopher is a 72-year-old man with a history of diabetes and high cholesterol. He was feeling fine this morning, but suddenly started experiencing weakness on the left side of his body and slurred speech. His wife called 911, 
and you've arrived on scene approximately 30 minutes since the onset of his symptoms. Upon arrival, Chris is alert but confused and has difficulty answering questions. His blood pressure is elevated, and he's slightly tachycardic. You and your EMS team recognize that difficulty in answering questions and confusion are neurological symptoms and begin to conduct a stroke screen. This crew uses the Cincinnati Stroke Scale and recognizes the following deficits. Weakness on the left side of his body, a facial droop on the left side, and an altered mental status. Being avid Guardian Education Group fans, they know better than not to check for stroke mimics that could be distracting them from another condition. They quickly rule out ETOH, ethyl alcohol, and seizure by asking the wife about his medical history and the nature in which he discovered the symptoms. They rule out a diabetic emergency by checking Chris's blood sugar, and they're now confident that the patient has a positive stroke screen, and they move on to follow their protocol. The recognition of a stroke is important, but their work isn't done. Determining the severity of the stroke may help the receiving facility prepare for definitive treatment. Now, using a stroke severity scale, the EMS crew further assesses Chris's symptoms, using their protocols to guide them. In this case, a fast ED score is recorded. Facial palsy, arm weakness, speech changes, including expressive and receptive aphasia, timing from the onset of symptoms, eye deviation, and denial and neglect involving his symptoms are recorded on their associated assessment. This grants Chris a score of less than four. This EMS crew knows that this score identifies that the likelihood of a large vessel occlusion, or LVO, is low. Since Chris's symptoms occurred within the past 40 minutes, he may qualify for thrombolytic therapy. EMS follows their local protocol and contacts the closest stroke-ready hospital with a stroke alert. On arrival, it's noted that the CT is negative for hemorrhage. The CTA doesn't show any occlusion in any of the large vessels, and the emergency physician's assessment also indicates a low suspicion of LVO. The medical team identifies the ischemic stroke and begins treatment immediately. They administer medications to dissolve the blood clot and improve blood flow to the affected area to the brain. Chris has also started on blood thinners to prevent the formation of additional clots. He's closely monitored in an intensive care unit for the next 24 hours. The medical team will carefully assess his neurological status and determine the best course of treatment. After several days in the hospital, Chris's condition improves and he's transferred to a rehabilitation facility for further treatment. He'll work with a team of therapists to regain strength and function in the affected side of his body. In this textbook ischemic stroke case, the EMS team was able to recognize neural symptoms and effectively rule out stroke mimics, honing in on the high possibility of stroke. Their further assessment with stroke severity scales and familiarity with their protocols allowed them to call a stroke alert to notify the receiving facility. They knew to transport Chris to a stroke-ready facility that is a hospital with CT capabilities to diagnose potential stroke. Not to mention, they responded to this problem fast enough to get Chris time-sensitive medications he needed. Jason is a 64-year-old man presenting with the sudden onset of weakness on the left side of his body and difficulty speaking. He reports that he was feeling fine earlier in the day, but suddenly started experiencing these symptoms while watching television. His wife called 911 and you have arrived on scene. Upon arrival, the patient is alert and oriented, but appears to be confused and is having difficulty following commands. His blood pressure is elevated and his heart rate is rapid. You and your EMS team recognize that difficulty in following commands and confusion are neurological symptoms and you begin to conduct a stroke screen. Your crew uses the Cincinnati Stroke Scale and recognizes the following deficits. Weakness on the left side of his body, a facial droop on the left side, the inability to lift, lift his leg or arm on the left side, and slurred speech. 
Being avid Guardian Education Group fans, you know better than to not check for stroke mimics that could be distracting from another condition. So the team quickly rules out ETOH and seizure by asking the wife about his medical history and the nature in which she discovered the symptoms. They rule out a diabetic emergency by checking Jason's blood sugar. They're now confident that this patient has a positive stroke screen and they move to follow their local protocol. The recognition of a stroke is important, but their work isn't done. Determining the severity of the stroke may help the receiving facility prepare for definitive treatment. Now using a stroke severity scale, the EMS crew further assesses Jason's symptoms using their protocols to guide them. In this case, a fast ED score is recorded. Facial palsy, arm weakness, speech changes including expressive and receptive aphasia, timing from the onset of symptoms, eye deviation, and denial and neglect involving his symptoms are recorded on their associated assessment, granting Jason a score of over four. This EMS crew knows that this score identifies the likelihood of a large vessel occlusion. Since Jason's symptoms occurred within the past two hours, EMS follows their local protocol and contacts the closest stroke-ready hospital with a stroke alert to discuss with medical control if he should be taken to a thrombectomy-capable stroke center. Medical direction decides he should be taken to the thrombectomy-capable stroke center, and the receiving facility is made aware. Delaying on scene to start an IV, run an EKG, or give any medications wastes precious time in this significant emergency, so the crew loads Jason into the ambulance and gets on the move to the nearest appropriate facility while they continue their assessment and treatment. Due to early and effective communication, a CT scan of the patient's brain is already ordered. The head CT is negative for hemorrhage, and a CTA confirms clot location in the large artery. The patient is diagnosed with an LVO stroke and taken to the neurointerventional suite for mechanical thrombectomy, a procedure to remove the clot. The procedure is successful, and the patient's symptoms begin to improve over the next 24 hours. Jason's prognosis is good. He is started on blood thinners to prevent future strokes and is referred to a stroke rehabilitation program. Jason walks out of the hospital with a good chance of making a full recovery. Quick recognition of neurological symptoms and systematic elimination of stroke mimics allowed this crew to move quickly. However, the wisdom of further assessment into the severity of the stroke symptoms and deep understanding of their implications allowed them to recognize an LVO and ensure Jason was taken to the appropriate facility. Without this piece, hours of precious time could have been lost, and the hospital where Jason ended up may not have had thrombectomy capability. Always be sure to apply your knowledge of stroke thoroughly to improve your patient's outcomes. Chris is a 35-year-old bartender that presents with altered mental status. One of his patrons notices his change in behavior and calls 911. You arrive with your crew approximately 20 minutes after the onset of his symptoms. Upon arrival, they assess Chris's mentation and discover that he is alert but not oriented and nonverbal. Heart rate, blood pressure, and breathing are all slightly elevated. You and your EMS team recognize his altered mental status as a neurological symptom and begin to conduct a stroke screen. This crew uses the BFAST mnemonic and recognizes the following deficits. Issues with balance, inability to follow your finger with his eyes, inability to follow command to smile, flaccid arms and legs, nonverbal. Being avid Guardian Education Group fans, they know better than to not check for stroke mimics that could be distracting them from another condition. They check the patient's blood sugar and find it on the low end of normal. They quickly rule out ETOH by questioning the patrons at the bar regarding his behavior prior to the incident and attempt to rule out seizure. After listening to Chris's customer describe the events leading up to the incident, they recognize that he is likely experiencing a post-ictal state after a petite mal seizure, not a stroke. They support Chris's airway, monitor his condition, 
and prepare anti-epileptics in case another seizure occurs. Chris begins to come too slowly and is reassessed using stroke recognition screens. Now passing the screens, the team is confident that Chris is not suffering from a stroke and is transported to an appropriate facility for seizure care. In this case, the dangers of assumptions come into play. Now that you're armed with more stroke knowledge, be sure you guard yourself from getting tunnel vision whenever you see neurological symptoms. This crew was able to recognize altered mental status as not just a symptom of stroke, but also a common stroke mimic, seizure. By applying what they've learned and carefully ruling out stroke mimics, their patient was treated effectively and a misdiagnosis was avoided. Hopefully these scenarios can give you a better understanding as to how the lessons learned in this course can be applied in the field to make meaningful changes to the outcomes of your patients. We hope you've enjoyed this lesson and can now recognize the significance in the work you do towards improving stroke outcomes in the field. In review, we've covered appreciating the value of understanding, identifying, measuring, communicating, and documenting stroke in the field. Identifying the parts of the brain and their function. Describing the pathophysiology of brain ischemia and infarct. Classifying, comparing, and contrasting stroke syndromes. And recognizing and differentiating strokes from stroke mimics. To receive your CE credit, make sure you complete the post-course quiz and evaluation. This concludes Guardian's lessons on foundations of stroke and stroke recognition, sponsored by Medtronic Neurovascular. We want to thank Medtronic for the opportunity to bring you this educational offering and for championing education for EMS providers. If you enjoyed this lesson, feel free to leave feedback when prompted. And check out our sister lesson, Integration of Stroke Severity Scales with Stroke Centers of Care, also sponsored by Medtronic Neurovascular, to learn more about how else you can make a difference in pre-hospital stroke care. Finally, we want to thank you, the viewer, for taking the time to learn these valuable lessons. We at Guardian believe that lifelong learning is the mark of a true professional, and that by participating in continuing education, you work to grow the EMS community and help those in need. Keep up the good work, keep learning, and be safe. Thank you for what you do. We'll see you next time.